Good morning. I'm reading our scripture this morning, which is Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the ter- territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. <clears throat> the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, good morning. Everybody good? Good. I'm glad. I am. I'm, I'm living the dream. I've decided to make whatever day it is, like whatever it looks like, I th- I'm, that's going to be the dream. I'm going to live it today. So, glad you're here. And, uh, yes. Okay, so, I sometimes, like, so I, I study all, like, Tuesday and then through Wednesday. And Wednesday afternoon, I start to put together, like, what I'm going to talk about. And sometimes I'm like, do I teach on this or not? Because nothing really happens. <laughs> Jesus, moves, <laughs> Jesus moves to Capernaum. Let's have communion. And just take the week off. Um, but, like, there's, um, there's actually a lot here, and I'm, I, I want to move on because it, like, in the next few weeks, he's, like, choosing disciples, and there's, like, deep meaning and that stuff. But there's a ground, a sort of a base ground level thing that, that we need to talk about that needs to make sense really before we move on so that we can build off of this thing because Matthew's audience is Jewish. From what I know, I don't know all of you, but the vast majority of you are Christian. And... Matthew's audience was in the first century. I don't know all of you, but most of you are not living in the first century. Some of you <laughs> might be. And, but there's things that are going on here that we need to talk about. And so it's complicated. It's, I'm going to try my best. We're going to talk history, and then we're going to talk um, like rabbinical interpretation and argument. And then we're going to talk more history. And then we're going to try to figure out what in the world do we do with this now. But I figure if I don't teach you these things today... Nobody else is going to. So um, we'll do this, um, and hopefully I can help this make sense um, because I tried to explain it to my wife, and she was like, try harder tomorrow to make it more more sense. (laughs) You're right. You're right. So with that, let's pray, shall we? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place, for these people. Um, uh, We are your body gathered together. And uh, we, have, we have problems, we have illnesses, we have sickness, we have um, places that we need to grow, but we are who you have gathered together. And so we come here today, we ask that you would do your will with us, that you would um, uh, mold us, make us into what you want us to be. Thank you for this place. Thank you that, again, people have gathered here together to focus on divine things, things that are higher than our normal everyday things, things that... Um, that speak to these everyday things and speak through me. Let me remember the things I've studied. Let me communicate clearly. Um, allow us to hear what you have for us. And uh, again, thank you. This is, this is a lovely thing that we get to do. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start here. And uh, if I start to lose you, just pull out your phones and just text me. Um, now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, so, okay. So, Matthew is not known for writing chronologically. Um, we just finished talking about the temptations of Christ. They're in the desert. Um, and Christ is being tempted. And then right after this, it says it said that he, he heard that John was arrested and then he left Nazareth. First off, we didn't know he was in Nazareth. Um, and then he left Nazareth because he wasn't. That's not where the desert is. People wouldn't live there. Um, and so he leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum. And things are a little out of order. Um, and it's not just that. When you actually study the temptations of Christ in Matthew, the second two are, are backwards than, than we have them in Luke. So there's some chrono- chronologically sort of different things going on. Um, the book of Luke actually says that Jesus started his ministry um, in, in Nazareth, that he was preaching a message there, that the first time he preached was there. Matthew has Jesus starting his ministry in Capernaum. Okay, so um, there's some contradictions that are there that we need to understand why. We need to understand um, the ancient reader. Um, so in order to understand this, let's start off by reading the, the synoptic gospel that I, ironically doesn't match um, uh, Matthew. We're going to start here, and, and I, I pulled a bunch of verses out because we're not exegeting this passage today. We're not pulling this passage apart and looking for the meaning of it. I'm, I just want sequence of events, okay? Uh, verse 16 of chapter 4 in Luke. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as he usually did, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it and found the right place. And so he opens, he walks up, somebody hands him this scroll, it's Isaiah, he opens it up to a specific place, and he starts to read, okay? And he reads, and then it says in verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, and he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Verse 22, everyone said good things about him. So it, it went well, all right? Um, then they ask a couple more questions. He says a few more things. Uh, and in verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were very angry when they heard that. Uh, then they got up and ran Jesus out of town. They took him to the edge of the hill on, on which the town was built, and they planned to throw him down the cliff. So there's actually writings that, there's, there's ancient like rabbinical writings that talk about how, how you know whether or not your message landed when you preach it. Um, they always carry you out. Either they're celebrating and they're going to take you on a parade of the town, or they're going to throw you off a cliff. All right, this is how you would know. But either way, success. If nothing happens, you lose. But if everyone's like, if there's a ruckus happening when you're done, it's great, Okay. Um, because it means something. Now, so after this, so Jesus preaches some stuff in the synagogue in Nazareth. They hate him for it. They drive him out, and then he moves to Capernaum. In Matthew, he goes straight from the desert wanderings to hearing John is in trouble, and then he goes, he goes to Capernaum, and there he starts preaching. So we have two different starts of the ministry, and the reason is the, the question we have is why? Why would the scriptures say this? Um, why? Uh, other questions are why, he, why is he rejected at Nazareth? Why is he embraced and received at Capernaum? Um, what is it about these towns? What is it about the mindset of these places? Um, and all of this, the contradictions are part of the message. Because there's things you need to understand about the first century, about ancient first century people when they talked about truth 
and meaning. They did it in a specific way that is vastly different than you and I did. First off, have you ever noticed um, the scriptures look nothing like a constitution? They don't. The New Testament is a bunch of stories. It's not, I mean, it would have been a lot easier if God enters into the story, hey, I'm Jesus, uh, son of God, nice to meet you. Um, here's, here's what we ask. Here's it all laid out. This is how you're going to live. It would all be easier and it would all make perfect sense. And we're Westerners and we actually sometimes read the Bible like this. It says in the Bible. And we just quote things. And we, they're literal and we just quote things. And the problem is you read the exact same passage in people from different sides of Christianity, followers of Jesus, will pull vastly different interpretations. And you're like, well, why? This, and this is a critique that atheists oftentimes give. Well, if God's perfect, wouldn't he be able to communicate his message a little better? Um, the problem is, first century listeners and readers and recipients of these books did not think like you and I. So first thing we need to do is get in the mind of the first century people. So the first thing we need to talk about is the Eastern mind. Um, sociologists, when they talk about um, ancient peoples, um, oftentimes they talk about um, what's called an Eastern mind and a Western mind. So the Eastern mind... Um, they speak in, in metaphors and similes and word pictures and stories and actions and dramas and poetry and song. It's not straightforward. If you ask a rabbi a question, he's going to ask you a question. And you're, no, you're the rabbi. Teach me. And he's trying to bring you to arrive at the answer and you to say it. Um, um, the Bible is filled with poetry. And Westerners have a hard time a lot, oftentimes with poetry unless you're right-brained and geared towards poetry. I'm not... I'm a poet, and I, and I know that. Um, not a poet. Uh, never mind. Um, pastor jokes. Woo. Um, so I know, but I know why poetry is in the scriptures. It's there because people who want to read history can just pull points out. World War II started in this day. It was between these countries and this country. There was this and this, and all these things happened, and it ended here. And we have a basic overview of World War II. Um, Ancient first century people are going to speak in poetry because you can't read poetry quickly. You have to stop. You have to read things over and over. You have to get into the emotive sort of stance of the writer. You have to feel what is sort of being conveyed, and you slowly have to pull the meaning out. You have to stop and spend time with it. It's the same reason the temple steps when you're approaching the temple, and I've taught about this before, were not just steps. They were awkward steps, a big one, two short ones, three long ones, one short one again, so that you couldn't mindlessly walk up to the temple and worship God. You had to slowly take your time lest you trip and fall. There was a, a slow... Um, sort of slow awakening and grasping to the things of God. Now, so the Eastern mind thinks different than the Western mind. The Western mind, when we communicate truth and we communicate um, things that are important to us, we use information. It's very simple. We use accurate accounts, statements, logical arguments, history, science, math, all of the things that were invented in the last six, seven hundred years. And things just need to make logical sense. And if they do, then, then it's good. If they don't, then it's not good. And we reject it. So you ask, um, so who is God to the Westerner? The Western mind is going to say, well, God is the creator of all things. God is omniscient. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere. Um, God came in the form of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to accomplish specific things, um, namely um, your salvation, and here's what you get from that. Um, 
and it's all just laid out, and then we invent things like the Romans Road. We get people to, we, we take 2,800 years of argument and, and, and conversation about God and who God is, and we narrow it down to a sinner's prayer, right? That's incredibly Western of us. Very efficient. It's like a drive-thru. It's like a cosmic salvation drive-thru. Um, oh, that's my favorite emo band, by the way. And the Eastern mind, if you say, well, who is God? God is my shepherd. God is the bread of life. God is, um, God is like a, a mother hen gathering her chicks beneath her wings. Um, God is like a shepherd who lost one of his sheep and went out and found that one sheep and brought it back. Um, God is... And they tell stories, and they write poetry, and they say things that are abstract. And sometimes when the rabbi says these things, it'll say things like, and his disciples sat and pondered the meaning of these things. We don't like that today. Um, Usually when pastors preach a message and it's not direct and obvious and applicable right now, people say, oh, he's being all mystical. I don't get it. I wish he'd just tell the truth. Stop. Maybe he's actually being a little more like Jesus. He's being a little Eastern. He's being um, a little more, he's bringing you into the conversation and the deep thought process that, that, that it takes to sort of unpack these ancient ideas. Um, and so when you read an ancient book like Matthew, it is written to first century Eastern-minded people. Uh, when you read Luke, it's the same. And so not only do you, do you contemplate their mindset with which they're reading the Bible, you need to contemplate the audience which each book was written to because, spoiler alert, it wasn't actually written to you. Luke was written to Greeks in the first century. Matthew was written to Jews in the first century. And it's really difficult for us to grasp that. It's kind of offensive. We cringe at that. What do you mean it wasn't? The Word of God was written for me. Of course it was. Well, if you can get into their mindset and if you can do the work and you can study and you can prayerfully and meditatively listen to the things God is telling these people, then it is for you. You will grab exactly what God has for them and you because these books have been preserved divinely, okay? So let's say you receive the book of Luke. Uh, You are a Greek, obviously, because this was written for you and you're gonna read about the start of Jesus' ministry, and for the book of Luke, it's in Nazareth. And you're going to read about um, someone who walked in to the, the Jewish synagogue and preaches this idea that is directly from God and that is true and that the religious elite, the religious elite reject and kick you out violently. And you read this as a Greek and you say, you know, I'm not allowed in the temple either. You know, I'm... There's, I can't, I can't worship this God. There's all these gods I worship. I, I, I don't know who this God is. I can't draw near enough to learn. I can't go in the synagogue. I can't go, I have to be, go through this whole ritual to hear about this God, Yahweh. Um, and even then, once I be convert to Judaism and I get baptized and circumcised and I go through the whole shebang, um, and then finally I can go in, but like there's this wall that other Jews can go into and I can't pass into that wall. So what is this? Why am I even... And then you read about Jesus, God in the flesh being rejected by the religious elite. And what you're seeing is God saying, hey, me too. 
And then um, you, you're, let's say you receive the book of Matthew. You would receive this because you're Jewish. And the writer, the author, has a specific reason for writing. And so when you read this, um, Jesus' ministry starts in Capernaum. And you're like, Capernaum? What? There is, he's, he's a Jewish rabbi. I mean, right near Capernaum is a town called Judea, a Jewish town. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't he go there? He's got to get followers, right? He's going to take part in the, the ancient sort of discipline of rabbinical arguments in Midrash and all of it. But he doesn't go there. Instead, he goes to Capernaum. Now, let's talk about Capernaum. Um, Capernaum, uh, it's actually, it would have been back then pronounced Kafarnechum. Everyone say Kafarnechum. Bless you. Um, there is, pollen count is off the charts. There is, um, so this word, this basically means the village of Nahum. By Jesus going to this town, remember he's a rabbi, eastern-minded people. He's saying something. He didn't just go there because the wages are good and it has seasons. Um, he went there because he's a rabbi and he's saying something by going there. And you would say, let's say I'm a Jewish reader. He went, to the, he went to the village of Nahum. Instantly, you know who Nahum is. The Greek readers, they wouldn't read the book of Matthew. It's not for them. They wouldn't understand what's happening. The Jewish readers, yes, I, I, I know what the message of Nahum was. The message of Nahum was doom and destruction on people who are oppressing other people. Why would Jesus go there? Why wouldn't he go to the Jews? Oh, he's saying something about the Jewish religion. He's waging war against the temple. You know what went on in the temple? There's these rooms in the temple where different things would happen, and, and there's this one particular room where they would, um, there would be this massive shelves filled with scrolls, and on these scrolls would be the lists of debts, like literal monetary debts that everyone owed to everyone else and to the government. And the Romans kept all of it there. Um, and so the place where sacrifices were offered to erase your spiritual debt is also the place where your literal physical debt that literally if you can't pay you go into slavery that's there in the room where where God dwells so God's people in the temple of God in God's house who are there to free people are enslaving and burdening everyone so when Matthew writes this the Jewish readers are stunned. They're probably offended. If Matthew was there, they may try to throw him off a cliff. Um, and so here we are. Um, now, we know a lot about Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was in a sort of a, for lack of a better term, like an area called Galilee. Uh, it's sort of like there's towns and then there's counties here. And there's different towns within these counties. Um, Galilee would be the county. Galilee, the word Galil, comes, uh, it means circle, and it's short for the circle of Gentiles, because this huge circle, on every side, there were Gentiles that lived, basically that means non-Jewish people, um, if you don't, abla church lingo. Um, And so, they're all Gentiles. There's three million people in Galilee, in this county. Three million people. There are some Jews there. They live in one little town at the south, the bottom of it, called Judea. Judea literally means 
land of the Jews. It's the one place where they lived. They wouldn't live in the rest of it. We know a lot about Galilee because it just so happens that the, the greatest historian of the first century spent some time as governor of Galilee. And he writes and he talks about Galilee. And he says, they were ever fond of innovations and by nature disposed to changes and delighted in seditions. They were always ready to follow a leader and to begin an insurrection. They were notoriously quick in temper and given to quarreling. Yet for all that, they were the most brave and honorable people. So they were looking for new ideas, new leaders. They were forward-thinking people who wanted new ideas to enter into their city and to preach. It's a good reason why Jesus would go there. Um, And then he actually mentions Judea, that little town, remember? And he says this, Judea is on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the way to everywhere. There was already in the first century this understanding that religious institutions tend to become self-preservationists and care about themselves at the expense of all others. And they tend to create these tight walls around themselves and not let any other ideas in and to hold them back. And they tend to get up in tight little groups and, and they tend to do things like start Christian music industries and Christian bookstores where you can walk into the store not say a single book that's not Christian, right? And even the ones that like, well, this one's a little less Christian. We're going to throw it out. You're safe here, right? Um, And like, this is the kind of stuff that religious institutions do. We do it today. They did it back then. It's an understanding that this is how religious people act. Josephus knew this. Um, If you read William Barclay and his, uh, his commentary on this passage, he says, the inborn characteristics of the Galileans were such as to make them the most fertile ground for a new gospel to be preached to them. And then he writes about Judea. Judea could erect a fence and keep out all foreign influence and all new ideas out. Galilee could never do that. Into Galilee, the new ideas were bound to come. There is this understanding among well-educated people why Jesus went there. And there is this understanding among the Jewish people of what this means to them, of how they are portrayed uh, in the first century. And when I talk about the Jewish people, no, I'm, I'm not talking about the average person. I'm talking about those who controlled the entire religion. Because Jesus was always gathering the everyday person and using them. And then the rest of the time, he's like sort of waging war against this established insular machine. So, let's see, where are we? Um, what, is, what, is this, what does this mean for the Jews? Um, there's a lot of meaning. Actually, um, Matthew pulls out some of that meaning right away. So everything I've just said to you, actually, when you read this passage, today's passage, you actually start to see this. You start to see that Matthew is writing this. He says, so Jesus left Nazareth and he went to live in the city of Capernaum. It was by the lake. He tells him right where it is. It's by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. In that way, the prophet Isaiah, what the prophet Isaiah had said came true. He had said the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, Galilee, where non-Jewish people live, land along the Mediterranean Sea, territory east of the Jordan River, people who are now living in darkness will see a great light. They are now living in a very dark land, but a light will shine on them. And so he quotes Isaiah 9, and then it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, turn away from your sins. He said, the kingdom of heaven is near. So he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah wrote near the same time, same century as 
as Nahum, and he wrote about the same thing as Nahum. He wrote about people who were oppressing other people. Nahum said, they're doomed to fail. Isaiah focuses on the people being oppressed, and he says, there is hope. Hope is coming. You will be freed from this. And in his day, it was the Jewish people who were being oppressed. It was God's people, it was the Israelites. And in Jesus' day, um, Matthew says that the message of Jesus was the same as Nahum and Isaiah. Doom and destruction on those who oppress, light to those who are oppressed. But he flips it. And he says, what, what your religion has become. Remember, Jesus is Jewish. Maybe you've never heard that. It's true. 100% Jewish. Jesus was not a Christian. That's like me being a Tommyist. Jesus was Jewish. And he stands up, and by going to this place, he's basically saying, um, we have flipped this. The oppressed have become the oppressors. You are doomed to fail. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached in the wilderness. It's why everyone left, right? And so you read this, and you can't just, as, as a first century Jew, you can't just pass by this passage. This has heavy weighted meaning. This sets the tone for everything else you're going to read about the message of Christ. And, and he says there's going to be a light in the darkness. He says Capernaum, basically, they're going to, the, the Gentiles are going to receive this message, this light in the darkness. Um, and the Judeans are sort of unengaged. And there's this message of condemnation for one, hope for the rest. So here we are, 21st century. What do we do with this kind of stuff? This is where it gets complicated. Um, but what we need to do is not only read this book in an ancient Eastern mindset, um, and try to pick up on what's going on. Not only do we need to gain the context of the actual readers of this book, we also need to look at it and say, uh, we need to compare ourselves to their situation. What is it today that is similar? Have we, and when I say we, this means several things. It means us personally, like me personally, us as a church, us as a global church. Um, have we become insular like Judea in the land of Galilee where everyone is so open to all these ideas and they are engaging with each other about the divine meaning of everything? Are we terrified? Have we like retreated, put ourselves in a bubble and plugged our ears and said, we're not going to deal with it. We're not going to listen. Are we insular? Have we done anything to reconcile with people for the ways that honestly Christianity has taken part in some of the greatest oppressions throughout human history around the world? All of these things that we, that we did during colonialism, if you read the writings of those people who led these movements, their ideas were based in theology. Bad theology, but theology nonetheless. Have we made any attempt to reconcile? Have we done anything to be honest? Are we self-aware of who we are? Being self-aware is one of the most important things you can be. Um, I listened to this podcast, and it's got, there's, there's two friends on it that they talk about how, um, it stuck with me. They talked about how they have this, they have this like annual or biannual ritual where they gather with their friends at um, like four dudes, whatever, at a bar, and they sit around, and they, it's, uh, it's self-awareness day, and they, they take turns being silent 
One person is silent, and the rest tell this person about himself. And they look at him, and they say, so you make every conversation about yourself. Um, uh, I know you have your phone on you, and you don't answer. Um, you, and they just say, from my point of view, this is who you are. This is wonderful about you. This is why we're friends. Um, this is why we almost weren't friends. Here's something you did that hurt my feelings and I never told you. And they become self-aware so that they can become better. Because it takes outside voices. This is why the church is important. Because you cannot fully know God without the perspective of everyone around you um, bouncing the image of God back to you. And you, you hear different things from different people and you say, oh, okay, there's all these things I didn't know about God. This is why you don't even know yourself unless spiritually, unless you gather in a community of other Christians, because you need all of our perspectives to look at you from sides that you would never look at yourself from and to say things to you that you would never hear hanging out by yourself reading books about God. We need community. We need to be self-aware. We need to understand how the world looks at us. When I was growing up, I remember, um, I grew up conservative Baptist, and there was this general understanding that I, that I learned, that apparently started in the 70s, that... Um, a lot of most well-educated people, I guess, I was made afraid of education. I was made afraid of scientists. I was told that scientists are atheists that, that hate God and they're trying to destroy God. Um, um, atheists don't believe in God because they hate God. They're like, I don't believe in you and I hate you. Um, and so everything was like anti-God or pro-God. And you could spend time with people who were one way and, and you shunned people who were the other way. You didn't spend time with them. And I grew up with a healthy disrespect for learning truth, really, unless it came from my circle. Um, and so I was, um, I, I even went to a college that taught these things. Um, the guy would wear a lab coat like a scientist and then spend the whole time bashing science. And at some point, I kind of woke up to like, oh, I was sort of indoctrinated to look at things this way, but this is not actual reality. Um, so there's these studies you can find. The Pew Research put one out last year. Uh, it looks a little like this. I know I found. I started finding out we have some sociologists in the room, so I started putting like links to the studies here. Click. Just put your finger up. Click right there. Um, I don't know. Write some stuff down. Um, so I. But um, so a recent religious survey of scientists. Here, I'm, I'm going to name a few points from this study. Most scientists do not think that science is inher- science inherently conflicts with religion. This was when I was 20. I was like, it's obvious that it does. Um, and then, uh, okay, so in some regional contexts, scientists are actually more likely to be religious than the general population. I know I misspelled that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> more likely to be religious. Uh, for instance, um, over 50% of the scientists in half of the areas polled, India, Italy, Taiwan, Turkey, um, say that they are at least slightly religious and even higher percentage in each of these four contexts identifies with a religious affiliation. So Americans, I think, came in around 36% of American scientists are religious. Um, But all in all, of actual scientists studying God's creation and telling us how it works, um, turns out they say, no, I'm actually more likely to be religious than you are, than the general public, because of the things they're studying. Um, and then um, there is scientists generally do not think science has made them less religious they don't it doesn't like 
What are we terrified of? We're terrified because we're self-conscious in our ideas, in our faith, and our understandings of God, and we worry that maybe our ideas won't stand up to criticism. Maybe our ideas won't and can't compete in the economy of ideas out there. If that is true, you have a problem. I tend to think the message of Jesus, if it is true, should be the most healthy thing for any community. If the message of Jesus is true, if Jesus is Lord, if he is the, the perfect representation of humanity, if, if, if it's God in the divine flesh, then following Jesus would be the most healthy thing to do psychologically, communally, that it should blend into each and every culture and benefit that culture. It should be the healthiest thing for each community and society. It should be the healthiest thing for family. It should be the healthiest thing you could do if it is true. And I believe it is. And so I need to engage. If I really think that this is the healthiest thing, then I need to engage. I can't be closing the wall, building walls around my community and saying, no, I'm not. Like, we, we talk amongst each other. Um, I used to have this general idea that um, the reason non-Christians couldn't understand the Bible is because they didn't have the Holy Spirit to interpret it to them, right? Um, and I, oftentimes I think that we just kind of say stuff like this to, like, to shield ourselves and to keep others out. What if we just open, open the doors and engaged? What if, we, what if we let them read and criticize? What if we became self-aware of how people look at us? What if we let them speak truth into our lives? Our, I mean, what we have in the first century is the actual religious elite, the theologians, the leaders of this, of this religion, and God himself walks into the room, and they're like, we don't like what you have to say. Get out. What would that look like today if God actually walked into this place, God in the flesh, and actually told us the message of God? Would we try to silence it? Would it make us so uncomfortable? Would it make us so uneasy about our own lives? Would it be a mirror reflecting back at us, revealing to us exactly what we've become? It's, it's likely that some of that would happen, yes. I mean, scripture, Jesus, over and over, you know what he said to people? He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Paul was regularly walking in um, to these gatherings of these philosophers and quoting their own philosophers and talking to them about the divine, about God, about Jesus, and says, I, I, can I offer this up to you? Have you thought about this? And getting involved. You know, non-followers of Jesus are writing books about Jesus. Did you know this? You know what's missing? Christians actually talking to them about it. Like engaging them. Saying, I hear you're writing a book about Jesus. Can I tell you what I know? Can we talk about this? Can I walk with you? What do you see? Here's what I see. Um, and so one of the things that 
comes up over and over and over again in a study like this, even, even mentioned by Josephus and William Barclay, is the idea of fences and walls. Like they could build walls around themselves. And this is what churches do. This is what Christian communities do. This is what families do. We build walls around ourselves because we don't, we just don't want to deal, right? Um, and churches do this. Uh, if you look at the idea of fences and walls, um, I talk about this a little bit in our membership class where um, a lot of churches sort of build these theological fences where if you're a cowboy, it looks like this. Um, the cows that you're going to let in, they're the same breed, they're the same colors, they have the same brand, and they come in and you close the gate, okay? Um, and they come into the corral. I don't know, I'm not a, not a cowboy. Um, <laughs> but there's places like Australia where this is impossible, where there's these massive tracts of land and there's no way to build a fence big enough to go around all of the cattle. And so you actually have to think differently um, and it reminds me of Judea and it reminds me of Galilee. And so what they do is they actually dig wells, man-made wells, in the middle of these massive tracts of land that you can never fence in. And what they find is the cattle are fed and they're nourished and they stay. They hang around. They never go too far. And I like to talk about the church like this. Instead of building fences, why don't we build some wells? Why don't we understand that grace is a well. It nourishes people. It refreshes them. They come to you and they say, I'm really sorry that, I mean, this is who I am. Hey, grace, grace and peace. Um, This is my past. Grace for you. There's grace for you. Here's the things I've done. Here's my thoughts. Um, Here's the ways that like I I disagree with you in all these ways. Hey, there's grace. Come here. Grace. Why don't we gather? You know what else is a well? Intimacy is a well. People want to be known. People feel like Christians don't want to know them. They want to be heard, and they feel like, a lot of them feel like the Gentiles standing before the religious establishment being said, you can't can't really come in. You can't sit at the table. Jesus had this thing about tables. One of the the early things that that Jesus taught his people to do, and the er, the most important practice of the early church was this table. You would set a table of food, and people would gather, and they would eat, and there were these rules like... um, like, we're all the same in here, no matter how rich you are. And so at one point, Paul writes this letter to these people who are having these meals, and the rich people and the elites um, and the religious leaders are gathering, and they're actually getting prime places at the table, and they're eating everything, and then the poor people again end up eating the scraps on the table, as they're used to. So Paul writes to them, he says, this is a travesty, this is not the teachings of Christ. The table's for everyone, we all come and we all receive the same, no matter how good you are or how evil you are. If you've murdered a thousand people, or if you saved a thousand people, we're all the same at the table. God doesn't separate us that way. And, and so there's these sort of tables, there's these wells, there's these, as Matthew says, as Isaiah says, light in the dark, right? Grace, intimacy, getting to know people. Um, mercy. Here's what I deserve. I, I understand what you deserve. Here's what I deserved, and God treated me like this. I'm going to treat you like this. It's, grace is going to come through me to you, right? Um, and so there's all, all of these things. Love, warmth, embrace. All of these things are wells the church has. We never put them out. We never serve them. Instead, we insulate ourselves and wait for it all to come collapsing down and burning and saying, we were right. It's unhealthy. It is the reason Jesus did not, first and foremost, go to Judea. It's the reason he was rejected in Nazareth. And what Jesus found was that 
He's going to go to all those who feel they have no part in what God is doing, and he's going to say, oh, yes, you do. There's grace for you. And so we're going to take communion. It's the picture of the table. Communion servers, why don't you guys go ahead and gather the elements and spread around the room. Um, If you are here today and you've been rejected by the religious establishment, if you felt no place in the church, if you have felt like you didn't belong in God's people as a member of the body of Christ or however you pronounce it, I want, I want to first off say I'm sorry. I want to say that that's not right and that I'm glad you're here. You're welcome to the table. What's on the table is bread. It symbolizes the body of Christ. Broken for you. Broken for me. There's also wine. It symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for you, spilled for me. When Christians get together, this is what we do to remind ourselves that we are all the same at the table. And we don't build walls to separate ourselves from you. We need your viewpoint. We need your voice. We need you to tell us what we see so that we can rightfully repent and reconcile and that we can accurately portray Christ, his gospel, and that we can understand it's the pouring out of the body of Christ, which brings about salvation. And so our communion servers, you guys can come forward and we're going to spend some time in confession and community and communion. Um, If you need to confess some sins, some ways that you have not lived up to the name that you bear, which is Christian, um, if, if you need to confess some things, find another Christian in this room. We're all what scriptures call um, priesthood of the saints. We can hear confessions and we can say, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus, not because of anything I've done, because of what Jesus has done. And we can lighten our load this morning. If you need prayer through these doors on the left, there'll be somebody there to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place, for these people, for what you are doing here. Guide us. Give us ancient minds to grasp these ancient concepts. uh, But give us first century hands and feet and learn how to, 21st century hands and feet so we can apply these things here today. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.